0: Hello and welcome back to the Critical Care Podcast, Building the Right Foundation. A podcast designed for nurses and doctors early in their intensive care careers. My name is Raluca Wagner, an intensive care nurse, and I'm joined by Chris Goff, intensive care consultant. And today we will be talking about kidney failure and the need for renal replacement therapy. So welcome back, Chris, and thank you for joining me yet again.
1: Oh, thank you for having me back. Yes, again.
0: Uh, it is my absolute pleasure. No. So what have we got today? What's our business for the day today?
1: So today we've got Bianca, who's in her 50s, who's just been transferred to intensive care from the general medical ward where she'd been admitted with diarrhoea for the last few days. Uh, she's also been taking some non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to help with a sort of colicky abdominal pain that she's been getting from that. But unfortunately, since she's come into hospital, she's stopped passing urine. She's now been anuric for the last six hours. And uh, they've identified on the ward that she is hyperkalemic with a potassium of 7.5. The rest of her observations are broadly normal. And so we're admitting her to intensive care because of hyperkalemia and an acute kidney injury. I
0: guess uh, a potassium of 7.5, it's a bit of a a red flag. um... So, yeah,
1: that hopefully makes everybody stand up and pay attention.
0: I, I guess it does, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I it does. Well, it should do. Hopefully, mm. um, yeah, that's potentially life-threatening hyperkalemia. Mm.
0: We're talking about acute kidney injury, aren't we? And there is a, a definition from 2018 that says that acute kidney injury is an abrupt and usually reversible uh, decline in the GFR, which stands for um, glomerular filtration rate so basically your kidneys don't really work the way they should be in very in very simple terms um, they've got a little bit of a hiccup and we just need to give them a little bit of a help to to get them through this
1: i think the the important thing you've mentioned there Raluca, is that it's acute but it is also potentially reversible so that's different from chronic kidney injury uh the acute ones can be bad can be really very impressive and life threatening but it's usually there's an acute cause which you can hopefully treat and if you do treat it effectively most of those should get better again and recover
0: mm. and you touched on the you know there is a cause for it and if we if we identify that and treat that then we are on for a winner basically and looking at the at the causes for acute kidney injury there are overall depending on how you look at it, a pre-renal, a renal and a post-renal cause, basically, isn't it? Um, A pre-renal where we look at a a, a low volume status, a low renal perfusion, and the decrease in the the GFR rate. Um, The intrinsic one, so the renal one, perhaps is that that Particular damage to the nephron, nephron, so it's it's intrinsic to the renal itself, or the acute tubular necrosis. There's options uh, in case we didn't have enough options. And post renal, we can perhaps see an obstruction of the urinary collection system. So it really depends, I guess, where where the issue is, and most certainly that will depend on how how we support our patients to get. Better or to get past this acute episode of kidney injury. Is that right to say? You look a bit concerned. It's
1: just my thinking face. Um, You're right that that, that's one way of splitting it up pre renal, renal, and post renal. And that can be quite a sensible, sort of structured way of, of thinking through it. Pre renal is the vast majority of ones that we see in intensive care. And that's, as you say, either from hypovolemia. Um, or from just lack of perfusion to the kidney. So you can see that in heart failure uh, as well. And that probably is the situation here. You know, the Bianca's had diarrhoea for several days, so that suggests that she might be hypovolemic. Um, and so that's likely contributing. We can also see renal, direct renal failure in um, in intensive care, and that's often due to drugs or toxins. So here the Bianca's also taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So that can also affect the kidneys. In intensive care, we're really good at giving drugs that can damage the kidneys. Antibiotics, for example, gentamicin is a very common one. It can all make the kidneys worse. And then post-renal is less common, but not impossible to see. Um, you either Because you've got bilateral collecting systems that go down to your bladder, it's often a bladder problem or lower down that can cause obstruction to both sides. So classically, that's blokes who have prostatic hypertrophy, um, but you can get other issues. I mean, sometimes just the catheter's blocked and we've not realized that the catheter's blocked and that can cause obstruction. Sometimes malignancies a little bit higher up can cause it, but I wouldn't, my mind wouldn't be going in that direction with Bianca. I'd be thinking she's hypovolemic and that's caused it and it's been exacerbated by the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that she's been taking. Um, And those two things combined have put her into renal failure, probably.
0: So a bit of a combination, basically. And again, this is another trend through all our episodes. It's never straightforward. I always go on, on, this is easy. This is going to be straightforward. I I know this. And then you always hijack my straight trajectory, Chris. So a combination of things, yet again, for, for our lovely patient. Okay, I can deal with that. So Bianca comes to intensive care. So with regards to me preparing the bed space, I will definitely have medication available. I'll have some insulin, I'll have some glucose 50%, I'll have some salbutamol ready and some calcium. I would have an extremely low threshold for getting my filter ready. With the potassium at 7.5, I would expect that a vast cath or a trialysis line will be put in quite swiftly. And whilst that is done, I can just get that, that filter ready um, and get the filter prescription and uh, and set everything up for that patient. The other things I guess I would have ready goes back to what lines we will insert, isn't it? Because the patient is coming from the wards, I would presume they wouldn't have a central access um, and they will need this either trialysis or a vascath inserted for uh, the renal replacement therapy. And also an invasive line uh, in the form of, a, of an arterial line for us to be able to um, to monitor the things that we need, which we'll be discussing a little bit later. I think basically in the 10 minutes that I normally give myself to get uh, my bed space ready, I guess that will be the main, main things that I would like to have um, at my bed space. Is there anything that you would, you would think it would be um, helpful to have?
1: Uh, the only other thing that, I've, uh, that I'm that i thinking about is uh, an ECG. So we would tend to do an ECG on these patients quite early on to ascertain the, the cardiac issues related to the hyperkalemia. So the, the potassium in itself, well, you might say, well, why is 7.5 a problem? Well, 7.5 is a problem or hyperkalemia in general is a problem because it affects the cardiac contractility and the electrical activity within the heart. And so you can see that, start to see that on an ECG. So we'd want to do an ECG early in this patient. Now that's not going to stop us from treating it. Um, and our our treatment, you've been preparing all the different parts for the treatment. You know, we don't know what she's had already, if anything, and you would try to treat it initially conservatively, so with the medical management. And if that fails then you would need to go on to the renal replacement therapy. And bring the potassium down with that
0: mm. that that is true and and a lot of that information as to what she's already had will get from the lovely handover, but I would quite like to know from the discharging nurse um why was the patient admitted to the ward in the first place? I think that would be quite interesting and important for me to 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 understand the trajectory of their the disease. What is we know that they are they've got diarrhea, but what is actually causing that diarrhea, and is that a, a reason for isolation? Do we need and perhaps have that conversation before they come down <laughs> and go in the bay? Um, do we do we need a, a separate room? Do we need to isolate this patient? You've mentioned absolutely, absolutely uh, true. What treatment they've already had, and I guess from a practical point of view. Some units or some some hospitals might have different systems, so relying on the electronic system is not always a, a choice. you know, uh, intensive care units might work on a slightly different system than the wards, or uh, one or both of them might be on on paper. So it's difficult to know. So get that that information quite clear. Um, and you've mentioned that, and I, I do want to to highlight this again. In in one of our first episodes, you mentioned about seeing what they've already head to assess what are the tricks we've got in the bag to help them and how severe and how quickly we need to process this patient. So looking at what they've already had, yes, it's important in terms of the medication, but also in terms of analysing and deciding course of action. Medical history analogies comes without saying. um, That is fundamental uh, for a handover. Blood results Ideally, again, I would quite like, if possible, to see the trajectory. You know, has this been building up quite rapidly? Has this been building up over a little bit of time? Is is there anything that we can pick up um, from, from the blood results? And the usual uh, ones that we quite like um, to, to remember, family, are they aware they're coming to intensive care? That's important to remember to keep the family informed if the patient wasn't able to do that themselves. And have they got anything or do we need to inform anyone of any, anything? So just, just remembering there's a patient there rather than just the, you know, the, the condition that we need to treat, there's that patient that we need to really hold their hand uh, into coming to an intensive care unit.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I think we, we often forget sometimes about the families. Um, and so that's vital, I think, to, to make sure that the families are informed or updated. But yeah, in terms of the medical management, yeah, what have they had so far? If they've only had a bit of salbutamol and one thing of calcium and the potassium is still high that's not quite so problematic as if they've had three lots of insulin dextrose and three lots of salbutamol and two lots of calcium and the potassium is still high that's that's a, a flag for me so yeah what else have we got in our repertoire that we can give them
0: mm. this is one of those uh um recurrent themes uh chris i'm going to make a list of them it's one of the recurrent themes that i quite like The broad in broad terms, and what have we got in our repertoire still, still to give and to help? Great. Okay. So we know we've had a really, really good oh, thorough handover, um, and now we need to start actually treating our patient. And this sort of management, as as I as I mentioned, in in some hospitals in some areas, got quite strict protocols that that we do follow. But I guess that doesn't take away the the assessment of that patient. A seven point five, it's considered a severe. It's considered severe, isn't it? And this is where we will have the patient on cardiac monitoring, which we'll normally have in intensive care. But there will be a very different uh, treatment. Um, but I guess when you look at the protocol, just at the face value, it's very hard because they go from. Uh, you know, from a, a normal, a mild, moderate, and severe, and this is like a, a best case scenario. No other intervent no other interferences, uh, and it tells you exactly what you need to do in each stage. But in real life, that doesn't quite happen that way, does it? So, what are we doing for for Bianca?
1: Well, the, the treatments can broadly can be split into it's my my phrase at the moment. <laughs> you've you've got options that stabilize the heart protect the heart you've got options that shift the potassium into the cells you've got options that ultimately bind the potassium and take it out of the system and you've got well filtration or renal replacement therapy which removes the potassium from the body so coming back to sort of the heart stabilization calcium is the one of the first drugs you must give this patient with a high potassium so calcium Basically antagonizes potassium within the heart, so it does the sort of the opposite action of calcium, and and sort of counteracts its high levels. So we'd give ten mils of ten percent calcium, be that calcium gluconate or calcium chloride, ideally calcium chloride, and that works to protect the heart. Now that doesn't last forever, so you might need to replace that um, or repeat it. Sorry, after half an hour, an hour. To give another dose of that but for the moment that will stabilize the potassium and stabilize the heart cells. You then need to try and get the potassium shifted into the cells so you've got two options here or you can give both of them. The first is giving insulin together with dextrose so the insulin itself increases the uptake of potassium into the cells and then you need to make sure you give the dextrose as well so they don't become hypoglycemic. And you can give salbutamol as well, which is either nebulized or IV. And that also helps move the potassium into the cells. Um, So both those things should reduce the plasma potassium level by a bit. You can then try and help get the potassium out of the system. One option that's often talked about is something called calcium rhizonium, which is given orally or rectally, which helps to bind the potassium. Um, and clear it from the system we don't often use that in intensive care but that's more people who have got chronic or long-standing high levels of potassium but they're awake and conscious with it that they they can take calcium risonium we are much more likely to go for something like renal replacement therapy um, dialysis or filtration to try and clear the potassium out of the body completely.
0: So with the with the options that, that you said, so stabilize the heart, shift the potassium within the cell and sort of looking at the is it calcium risonium? Is that fair to say this is the, the first line of, of treatment or would you do all of this at the same time and then see what happens and if it doesn't get better then we go and the last resort is the renal replacement therapy?
1: usually you would try medical management first so you 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 must give them the calcium chloride or calcium gluconate first the iv calcium to protect the heart from the high levels of potassium then you must try and shift the potassium into the cells to try and get the levels safe so that's the insulin dextrose and salbutamol if you get a response to that you can you can see how you can do other things to try and clear the potassium perhaps considering diuretics or is it just because they're hypovolemic try and give them some fluids what you'll sometimes see is the potassium will come down slightly as you give those therapies and then as another half an hour or so goes by the potassium rises again and you find you're repeating it a couple of times and then you you sort of have to accept we've not managed to treat this medically we need to proceed to the next line which is renal replacement therapy. But there's there's not like there's there's not like there's several tiers of treatment before renal replacement therapy. That's basically it.
0: And then the big machine comes. So, <laughs> depending where you are, it's going to look uglier or nicer. I guess that's um, it's a very simple way of putting it. Renal replacement therapy. Uh, the majority of intensive care have renal replacement therapy treatments. Is that correct to say within um, across the country.
1: For sure, yes, yeah, but sort of the bread and butter of intensive care really
0: and I think it's fair to say it's not a pretty machine, and it's not an easy one to <laughs> to troubleshoot either but what does it what does it do what is the 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 sort of the working behind it? Yes, it's gonna take away that potassium, but is there any sort of um behind the scenes uh working and processing that we we need to be to be aware of? and i think i'm hinting to i'm hinting towards the different types of arena uh, replacement treatments that we have i guess it's it's a right prescriptions that we have i guess that's the right way of putting it
1: i think it's very easy for this topic to become really complicated very quickly and you've already alluded to the big machine and before we started recording this you were telling me about it's you know you, ha- you hate looking after the filters and i certainly know they seem to be always constantly alarming And we're sort of troubleshooting them all the time. But the the big, the sort of the overview is that the renal replacement therapy takes blood out of the patient. It then does one or one of two things to it. Either it can just filter it. And by that, I mean, it's akin to sort of pushing the blood against a sieve. Before it goes back into the patient. And then, that with that, small molecules that could fit through the sieve will get pushed out of the blood and can be discarded and they can be waste products. Uh, and that could work for things like potassium, and sodium, and creatinine. The alternative, or what can happen at the same time, is the dialysis element. And what that means is that if you have fluid separated from the blood, by a semi-permeable membrane, and you give it enough time, ions and things can diffuse across that membrane, uh, across a diffusion gradient, so a concentration gradient. So um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, but let's say you just have a higher concentration of it one side of the membrane, that will then move across and move to the other side of the membrane. So that is that's the dialysis element of it. Uh, so you can get things mu- moving purely on a Sort of a, a pressure or a, a, a filtration element and you can have them moving on a dialysis element and then you can also choose where you replace your you know your filter replacement fluid uh can come in various places into that circuit as well because what you don't want is you might not want to correct things too much you know if you don't give any replacement you could lose all your potassium and all your sodium and not actually get any replacement and it could become dangerously low uh, you don't want that. So you need to try and get things back to roughly normal. So in, in in broad terms, that's how a how a filter works. The other thing we need to think about is how we stop the filter from plotting, because that's the second nightmare we seem to have with filter machines, apart from don't touch any of the bags that are hanging on it, because that will make it alarm, is is uh, the, the anticoagulation. I suppose before we go on to that, you obviously have more sort of day to day handling of the filter machines than I do does that does my sort of overview of how they work sort of fit with what you see and experience with the filter
0: most certainly that's that's what we are seeing and um, and that is basically the principle and and depending on what the patient needs, it will depend on your prescription. Do you take any fluid out do you leave the fluid? do you just um circulate the blood the blood so you can get rid of the potassium? how much potassium you give back, how much you don't. So that will be your your bags and how much potassium there will be in those bags. So it's absolutely spot on, I have to say, Um, and also absolutely spot on when it comes to alarms. Um, And (laughs) a filter that coagulates is uh, is a massive issue. Um, The other issue that uh, I see quite often is access. And uh, the pressures, the venous and the arterial pressure are always beeping at you for some particular reason. I guess my tip for that is do not ignore it. Do something about it. If you just silence it, it's going to come back and then your filter's going to decide they're going to stop that. They're quite, they're quite uh, strong uh, willed filters. <laughs> They've got a mind of their own. So if you do need to, to stop your filter and to look at the access, if um, your doctors need to have a look and, and either uh, readjust or reinsert a new line, that is perfectly fine. That's what it needs to happen. And the important bit, and I guess one of my safety checks in the morning when I have a patient with a renal replacement therapy, is uh, whether or not they have got a group and safe ready. In case I do lose that filter and in case I do lose that blood, and I can't give my patient the the blood back either because it happened too quickly or because it uh, coagulated and and then that's nothing I can do. I don't want to give um, clots back to my patient. So that's one definitely a massive um, safety check that I will do in the morning with any any patient that I have got on a on a filter. And then how do you stop the filter clotting? There are there are two ways, aren't they? Do you have a preference because there's a big debate as to do we use a sickca or do we use heparin uh, and when do we use what 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 is your deciding factors as to when you write a prescription, whether you're going to go for a for a heparin and I know again there's strict indications somewhere um but what would be your your deciding factors?
1: Well, all I will say is that there's more than just the two options. those two are what we use most commonly. But there are more options. So, firstly, you've got the option of keeping the anticoagulation just to the circuit, to the filter circuit. And if we do that, most commonly we use the citrate anticoagulation, um, which actually seems to be commonly used now in most intensive care units. Over the last sort of five years, we've probably all moved over towards that, generally speaking, um, which reduces the risk of systemic anticoagulation. But does come with other problems of citrate accumulation and toxicity, particularly in people with quite severe uh, liver failure. There is another way of keeping uh, um, the anticoagulation just to the circuit, and that is using heparin in the circuit and reversing it with protamine. We don't do that very often. I'm not seeing that in the UK at all, in fact. Um, What we most commonly use otherwise is systemic anticoagulation with a heparin infusion. that can have advantages, particularly in people who perhaps are already being anticoagulated, perhaps for PEs. Um, I mean, there is evidence that even if you are systemically anticoagulated, you should perhaps still use citrate for the filter because that will still reduce filter clotting and improve your, um, your sort of filter time on the, uh, on the filter. Um, but that does expose you to both problems of heparin issues and of the citrate problems. I mean, generally speaking, citrate's pretty well tolerated by the vast majority of our patients, which is, which is many ways why we've all sort of embraced citrate anticoagulation so, so widely. Um, but heparin is an option, systemic anticoagulation as well as the circuit. There are some patients who are so coagulopathic that they don't need any coagulation at all. Um, and so you can run a filter with no anticoagulation at all. And there are people who you can run it on something called prostacyclin. Uh, which is another type of uh, systemic uh, anticoagulation that you can use instead of heparin, but, but most commonly we use heparin systemically or citrate just for the filter. Um, but that does lead us on to that does lead us on to the fluid balance target, um, which I think is really important to talk about. So. You know, we might be starting filters or renal replacement therapy on patients for a huge variety of reasons. In this case, it's for hypoclemia in a patient who might be hypovolemic. But equally, we could be starting it on someone who is failing to wean ventilatory-wise, who's got prolonged renal failure, who we might want to take fluid off. Uh, and so it's really clear that we communicate what we want our fluid balance target to be, um, be it allowing them to get positive, be it keeping them neutral or taking off some fluid. Uh, Different places will work this in different ways, be it sort of prospective for the 12 hours ahead or retrospective based on what their fluid balance was for the last 12 hours. Um, But the key thing is is basically to keep quite a close eye on it, um, on what the target we want is versus what they're actually achieving, Um, because you can get quite marked changes in a 12 or 24 hour period. Um, The only other thing I I suppose I'd say at this stage is that if you're struggling with access pressure issues, do tell us, do tell the medical team. Because often it's because we've actually dried the patient out a little bit too much. And we're optimistically saying, take another litre off in these 12 hours. And you're there going, but the access pressures. um, And to be honest, that is a conversation we should have, because if the access pressures are uh, uh, alarming then that is probably because we've we've actually got them as negative as they can go at the moment. Mm.
0: So don't suffer in uh, in silence, basically.
1: Um. <laughs> don't suffer in silence, because often we would prefer, you know, it might be that we want them as dry as a pancake, in which case we'll say, well, just keep trying, do what you can. Or it might be that we'd prefer to have time on the filter without taking the fluid off, but also without it alarming and without it clotting or stopping working, because mm. there's nothing worse than us going, well, actually, they just need time to clear some of these waste products. If we get them a bit negative, then bonus. But actually, we're trying so hard to get them negative that we end, the filter ends up going down again and again. And we end up not actually giving them the time to clear the waste products. Yeah.
0: And and it's that conversation be, between us, um, nurses, and you guys, doctors, uh, about exactly what you want to achieve and how we can... Um, manage that because to be twelve and a half hours at the bedside with a with a filter that alarms every five minutes, um, you you go home and you dream about it basically, and it's not going to benefit the patient. So uh, you're absolutely right. It's, it's sometimes there is that conversation that like, okay, let's find the happy medium between the two, um, and see what what we can achieve rather than what we 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 necessarily want, um, realistically the one thing that i did want to to highlight we're talking about communication and uh, and discussing the the fluid targets fluid balance targets um and there is a it has to be quite a clear communication as to what negative means and what what you know when you say in 12 hours i want them to be minus 1 liter um is that based on what you're seeing now from your balance where there are 5 liters positive or is it based on A zero and then a minus one there's always been a massive confusion about what what we mean by that okay so what exactly do you want so that that's has got us into a bit of a a, a several conversations throughout the throughout the shift as to what you want Um, and I do know different places work differently you know you you can run on a six hours prescription or you can run on a 12-hour prescription or a 24-hour prescription or um, you can adjust uh, your auto filtration rate. So how much you take out on a round basis or on a need basis. So I guess uh, we just need to be apprehensive and mindful of, of the different places and where we work and how it works. Um, is that your experience in working in, in, in other trusts and areas?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Everybody does it slightly differently. Um, and, as you say, just be clear on your communication on what you want, and that goes for doctors and nurses. you know we've all got to get to the same page of understanding of what is best for the patient and you you've highlighted some lovely examples there of when it can when it can go wrong, so we're you know we're twelve hours into the shift, let's say, and we're at plus three liters. Well we're starting the filter and going minus one liter is that minus one liter from the plus three liters or minus one liter from zero, or what what is it we're trying to achieve um and just making sure that everybody understands what it is that we're trying to achieve uh, is key. And as you say, there are different ways of doing it. Shorter prescription times mean you'll get more regular review and more flexibility, but that's a higher workload and much more paperwork. The longer longer prescriptions mean uh, you can start to get change, slightly weird changes in your fluid balance because it's been adjusted for from so long before um, that it can be a little bit out of date particularly in the acute
0: phase. And also from from my perspective, it's about what we monitor when we ha- when we have a patient on um, on a renal replacement therapy. Um, and again, there's quite a strict, you do this before you even attach the filter, you check this blood levels five minutes after and then every six hours. And those are greatly important. And you, you've touched on some of them on this episode and on the previous episode. And I'll just introduce the first one, and we we're talking about calcium.
1: I'm going to say, can we come back to calcium? Because calcium is very specific to a citrate filter. But talking about sort of filters more broadly, I love, love a broad term. But but for filters in general, you may not be monitoring anything particular. So I mean, obviously in this case we've got an issue with hyperkalemia, so we need to keep an eye on the blood gases and the potassium level. Um, but really, you would be expecting the potassium to be getting better. You know, keep an eye on the sodium, the creatinine, the urea. All of those numbers should be getting better on renal replacement therapy. There are then specific things to monitor depending on what type of anticoagulation you're using. So for a heparin infusion, for example, which will be systemic, you need to be looking at the anticoagulation. So you need to be looking at the, the APTTs or the anti 10 levels to look at that. With citrate, it's possibly the most complicated because it's all about the calcium and the ionized calcium and the total calcium and the calcium ratios and what that can mean for you in terms of citrate toxicity and how you change your rates of calcium on the on the circuit as well. So it is deeply complicated, but there are, as you say, protocols for how to deal with that. And there are also things within that protocol on when on when it should be flagged up to someone more senior as a concern that potentially this could be a sign of citrate accumulation or citrate toxicity
0: we've gone through what to monitor in broad terms and i guess that that's a it's a very good reminder for me being mindful that different areas work with different type of filters and we need to work within our trust guidelines and unit guidelines. Um, so thank you for that. That was very very useful. When it's safe to stop the filter, uh, if if I was to look at the, at that, I guess it's very much about has the problem resolved or not.
1: I think I think that's fair. The challenge can be that when you when you're on the filter your kidneys will produce less urine. And so you may not see normal renal function while you're on the filter. And so often you will have to stop the filter and see what happens. Um, Now, that's not saying that you accept them being completely anuric, but you may be quite oliguric whilst on the filter and that may be completely normal. But once you stop the filter, that kidney function will improve further. Exactly why that is, is not totally clear. Um, but it seems like the kidneys have a bit of reserve in them. Um, it's a bit like if you, do a, um, if you do a nephrectomy, take out one person's kidney, their renal function will transiently appear to get worse and then the other kidney will start to pick up some of the slack and the kidney function will numerically start to get better again. It's a lot like that. So the kidneys are only really doing the function that they need to do and so whilst you're on a filter or on a renal replacement therapy they won't be going all guns blazing so you often need to stop the filter and see what happens. So, Raluca what were your three take-home messages from that episode?
0: I guess the first one I will go with the with the latest thing that that we we discussed where I went all on oh, this is what we need to, to monitor when we talk about filters. But actually, my takeaway is this, um, my takeaway point is that it really, really depends on, on the type of uh, renal replacement therapy that we're looking at um, and, and focusing on those things. Because the way we filter and the prescription, the treatment, the medication that we use to filter is what's going to impact on what you need to look out for. So that's quite clear for me. The second one, there have been quite a few things. I guess I, I quite like the, the the breaking down of stabilise the heart, um, shift the potassium back in its cell, as it were, um <laughs> and uh if everything fails, uh go into the renal replacement therapy. But having that organized thinking quite is up my street. I quite like that finally is each patient is different it depends on the trajectory depends on what they've already had done uh, as to what we are going to do so although we are sometimes not confined but more influenced by the protocols we have in our trust in our unit I always justify why why you're doing and why you're making a certain decision and and discuss it. you're not alone in that in that um, decision and i guess that that comes to, to you, as a doctor, you're not alone in that decision, um, and, and the discussion is always uh, welcomed.
1: Yeah, no, I think there's a right. I think uh, my three are just ever so slightly different. First, uh, causes of acute kidney injury we can divide into sort of pre-renal, renal, and post-renal. But don't forget that patients may have two things that are combining. So remember, in this case, it was hypovolemia and drug effects on the kidney. So you need to treat the hypovolemia. You also need to stop those drugs that are causing the problem. Uh, the second is that the sort of the immediate management of hyperkalemia, you've got to give calcium chloride or gluconate first to protect that myocardial tissue from the electrolyte disturbances, from the, so the electrical activity of the potassium, so calcium first. And then finally, sort of, it, it should really be a sort of a, a group discussion or, a, a, you know, that's discussion about fluid management and balance and making sure that we're all clear on what the target is and how achievable that is, together with letting us know if that there's, there's problems with the, the line itself and access pressures, so that we can guide that fluid balance target to make sure it's achievable.
0: I would uh, fully agree with your three points, take away, uh, take away home messages. And on that note, I guess we are at the end of our lovely episode, um, and it will be great to do a little summary
1: so, Bianca has come to ICU from the ward with a new onset hyperkalemia and acute kidney injury. We've treated her medically with calcium, insulin, dextrose, and salbutamol. That's failed to resolve the issue, so we've started her on renal replacement therapy. And we've decided to put her on a citrate filter um, and to clear the potassium. And we've talked about the different types of, uh, broadly, how the filter works and the different types of anticoagulation that we can have for the filters to keep them working.
0: That's even under a minute. It's not like I'm timing, but uh, <laughs> it's under a minute. It's, uh, it's amazing. Um, with that in mind, thank you again for for joining, Chris, and thank you for for sharing your knowledge and experience. It's, again, great to have you. For our listeners, uh, if you want to join us in our next episode, uh, we will be talking about the neurosystem. Thank you for listening and thank you to Healthcare Leadership Academy and Medics Academy for supporting and sponsoring this podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and don't forget to give us a like, to follow us and drop us a comment. Thank you all for listening and see you at the next episode.